Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Sorry for the delayed show, comrades. I have been trapped in bunker in Siberia for two weeks living off bottle of vodka and have 60-year-old Belamorkanov. Amphibious 
bridging vehicles driving around. Uh, things which were clearly designed for assault crossings of, of major rivers with, right. Brit- with um, American troops driving them around. So, I mean, it's the height of the Cold War. Mm. And it was clear that the so the American troops there were not preparing for defensive war. They were they were preparing to launch an invasion of Czechoslovakia and Eastern Germany. Mm. Mm. Um, so obviously, when you went across the frontiers, they were very tightly controlled, and it took quite a while for them to check check your belongings and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went and stayed at a campsite that belonged to the Czech Academy of Scientists um, mm-hmm. because we were meeting up with some Czech chemists. Mm-hmm. And the thing which struck me about the ideology of these guys is that they're very nice and hospitable. They were having a quite different lifestyle from the equivalent people in Britain because the equivalent people in Britain would not go on holiday with fellow chemists. They would have mm-hmm. gone on individual family holidays. Mm. Um, and there were also lots of East Germans there camping. Uh, mm. It was apparently a common resort for the East Germans. The East Germans look slightly better off than the Czechs, or slightly mm. slightly more stylish cars than the Czechs. The, <laughs> but the, generally, the, the, the people you're seeing didn't seem to have that qualitatively different standards yeah. from what I was used to in Britain. I, they're obviously not able to afford or go on long flights anywhere, but it was rather reminiscent of the lifestyle that you would have seen in Britain in the 1960s, say. Yes. A decade earlier. Um, but the, the thing which struck me was the attitudes of the chemists, in that they were expressing ideas which really, you in Britain, you'd, you'd only expect Tories to be saying. You know, mm. that uh, if things are publicly owned, no one takes any care of them. Mm. Um, there's no incentive to, to look after things if they're publicly owned, this sort of thing. Mm. Which, which struck me as very, um, very Tory sort of attitudes. Yeah. type of flight. We're flying on a yak, uh, like a small yak transport, twin jet transport. Mm -hmm. And it was clearly being piloted by a former fighter pilot. Oh, we met other fighter pilots as well, but I'll tell you about this, this, the the guy who was flying the yak. Because we're coming into um, Krakow airport and he's circling around high above the clouds and then he just went into a fucking dive, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> went down in a way no no western um airline pilot would take you in and, and zoomed in onto the runway so it was you know the planes had these uh bomb aimer windows at the front um so it was there it was obviously you know, no doubt they had good 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 pilots but they they were uh very military in style Hmm. And we traveled around on trains within the country. In Poland. In Poland. We went to Gdansk, which was significant because just a few months after we left, all the the solidarity strikes took place in Gdansk. Mm -hmm. And given the shortage of meat, I can understand why it happened. Mm -hmm. But the coming back, we were stuck in a really long train, 12-hour journey, extremely crowded. uh, And in Poland, there were... There were so many people in military uniforms, and they were out like to me. They seemed like comic opera military uniforms because they seemed like something out of uh, pictures of the 1914 war. The sorts of things oh, they were wearing: great coats, uh, chasseurs alpine sort of uniforms mm-hmm. of what were obviously mountain troops. Mm-hmm. Again, looked like uh, the uniforms of the the. You see, I'd seen videos of Italian troops wearing in the First World War against the Austro-Hungarians. But we were sitting in the train and couldn't get a a seat. So we were sitting on our rucksacks in the corridor and got into a conversation, someone who spoke English, and he was a fighter pilot. We got Mm. a a long discussion with him. He he was sort of, I don't know whether you ever read the Biggles stories as a boy. No. 
No. no. The, they're old children's stories about fighter pilots from the Second World War. And the guy sort of was almost like a caricature of a British um, idea of an RAF fighter pilot of the Second World War. Young, dashing, silk scarf round his neck, sort of... Okay, uh, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he regaled us with stories about how they were going to carry out low-level attacks and nuke Denmark. Um, and that was what his job was, to, to get across the, the Baltic and hit Copenhagen. So you, you, you're getting the other side's military view of the things. Right. Um, but he was all very enthusiastic about this. Didn't, see, didn't seem to have any doubts that, uh, you know, that this is what they were going to do. But as I say, this was right at the height of the Cold War. And on both sides, you're seeing all these preparations. I mean, yes. the, you, you saw all the American military in Nuremberg, mm. in Prague, and in Krakow. Places mm. full of people going around in military uniforms. Mm. Um, mm. Next place I went to was Bulgaria. Again, because I, I got to know a Bulgarian computer scientist. And What year was this when you went to Bulgaria? <sighs> a couple of years later, I was still... Hold on, trying to work out. Was, I was still a PhD student. I got my PhD in 83, so this was probably probably 82. Um, 82, probably. Hmm. Um, and you, you fly straight into Sophia? Where, where were you in no, Bulgaria? No, flew I flew to Athens and took a train. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of train travel. Um, and met them in in Sofia, and th th Bulgaria was the socialist country which impressed me the most. Actually, mm. a number of things were were positive about it. In that the people we met were very pro-socialist, whereas uh, the people we met in Poland were were real. What they thought was exciting was some radical Catholic priest who, who preached in the local church. Um, the we could, uh, in Poland, we'd get away with not expressing enthusiasm for Catholicism by, because they thought we were from a Protestant country. So uh, uh didn't have to get into us saying that we were communists at that point because mm. the people we're meeting were, were, were obviously were there Catholics. But the um, Bulgarians were very enthusiastic about socialism. Mm. Um, I met people who were working on a big public art project um, in a, a, a central roundabout. And the artists and people, it seemed to be done like in a very sort of um, collective fashion, as just as some, an ad hoc collective of artists were had got the contract to build this huge monument and mm -hmm. were, were working on One second, Paul. I think I've lost you for a second. One moment. The thing that struck me was, compared to Poland, the shops were absolutely full of food, mm. vast quantities of it. Lovely smells of spices and yogurts and, you know, the, the, those comparatively small supermarkets, but they were packed. And I was driven right to the north to visit uh, the hometown of the, the professor who I was staying with. And he said, oh, there's a place we must stop to eat. And mm -hmm. it was actually a collective farm. Uh, and he said, I didn't discover until we got there. There was a collective farm and the collective farm canteen was written to have really good meals. So this was, it's interesting to me that people just call in at a collective farm canteen mm. for a meal. Mm. At another place, uh, we went to, I, I was taken to visit a, some party official who was having a, um, a dinner at uh, some hotel, and that, it was clear that he was that those sort of pretty posh uh, standard of hotels for them. But I didn't get the impression there was a big. Maybe I'm wrong, but because uh, this was superficial, I only met a few people. But I didn't get the impression that there was a, you know, any big, market yeah. degree of poverty because what you, there was lots of new housing which struck me as not much different from working-class housing in Scotland. And given that the country was um, supposedly much poorer, that didn't seem bad. Uh, as I say, there was, unlike Poland, there was lots of food. And I talked to people about it, and they said, well...
problems in the Czech Republic. Uh, what, what other sort of differences did you notice between uh, Bulgaria, um, Czechoslovakia and, and Poland? Well, I mean, Bulgaria, as I say, the, the ideological atmosphere was different. People seemed, they were very pro-Russian, okay, which obviously the Poles weren't. Mm. And the, the Bulgarians are pro-Russian for historical reasons of the role of Russia in helping them gain independence from the Turkish Empire. Yes. Um, so they still maintained monastery, sorry, monuments built in the 19th century to the Russian liberation from the Turks. Mm. And this translated through to the, the not being a hostility to the Soviet Union in the way there was in Poland. Yes, okay. Um, also, I mean, th 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 there are other sort of things. You went, I was taken around an art gallery by uh, a student in Sofia who could speak French. Again, in order to speak, uh, I, the only ways I was able to talk to anyone in Bulgaria was in French. Um, I mean, we, what we discovered was if you, if you, uh, if you spoke any West European languages, you're useless because me mm. and Greg could speak French and Spanish and of course useless, totally right. useless. Uh, but in Bulgaria, I met people who could speak French. Uh, it was Poland. I didn't, it was very, you never found anyone who could speak French or Spanish. Um, the, he was showing me around this art gallery and there was a, there were paintings which were, you'd, you'd clearly say it was surrealist style. Okay. Mm. Um, except it was socialist surrealism um, in, in that it there was one painting which I thought god that's a weird looking one uh, and it was you know the, the, the René Magritte's uh, Belgian surrealist style I am uh, okay well you don't know Magritte but it, it's, it, it's, it's after the Belgian surrealist style um, okay. and it, it was a painting which had a loaf of bread, some fruit on a table, which is standard artist sort of thing, mm -hmm. done in surrealist style, but a Tommy gun lying okay. next to it. And okay. I thought, well, that's quite striking. And the student said, well, uh, he, the, the artist is saying, those who don't have bread have to take up the gun to get it. Mm. And this was in the main art gallery, done as a surrealist painting. Mm. It wasn't a propaganda it, it wasn't an evident propaganda painting, but it was a sort of surrealist work of art. Uh, mm. So it's interesting the, uh, that whoever that artist was, mm. he'd taken the, um, the surrealism, which in Belgium or Spain, it, 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 if it's Magritte or Dali, doesn't have any progressive content and had given it this revolutionary content. What other trips we had? Right at the end of the socialist period, we went to East Germany with comrades from the Workers' Party of Scotland just to see what was happening. Because it was just for clarity, this, that, was, this is after 1989 then? This was 1989. Okay. Um, I think, or it might have been 91 or so. Um, the, we tried to go before, and the East Germans would not give us a visa to go in. Because at that stage, my girlfriend was a Ger West German and West Germans weren't allowed into East Germany. Okay. So as, as members of one of the conquering powers, uh, they had to give, um, they would have had to give passports to me and Greg Michelson, but not to Christiana Dederding because she was a West German. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't till the wall was opened that we were able to go there. Um, and again, what struck me is that, that at that time, prices were low, but there was no shortage of food and, and supplies. Shops didn't look that different from, again, very like Britain in the 70s. We went to see um, Dresden, which in, uh, in Britain is famously compared to Coventry because both were Gone. destroyed during the war. And I can yeah. remember in the 60s being taken as a, a child to see the rebuilt Coventry. And it didn't strike me as terribly impressive. I thought, oh, these just look like all ordinary British houses. 
but because uh, I was expecting to see something, you know, futuristic and uh, mm -hmm. like Brasilia or something, but it wasn't. But what struck me about East Germany there was that it looked very similar to 1960s or early 70s Britain. Um, we were traveling with uh, comrades from the Workers' Party of Scotland, and they reckoned that, I mean, we were comparing it with Glasgow, and we reckoned that it was uh, certainly no worse, probably better than the equipment areas in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And when people from uh, Britain, when journalists from Britain go to, went to East Germany and things, their standard of comparison was not not Glasgow, it's probably prosperous areas of London. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore the contrast would seem evident, but uh, yeah, it so didn't do to us. Um, in Prague, we, we've traveled around the city a lot and looked at bits of it. And uh, maybe just uh, with the naivety of youth, I went straight to the computing department of the university mm -hmm. and, and tried to introduce myself to people um, and ended up in the main computer center. You know, mm -hmm. not, not actually the academic center, but the, the place where they kept their time-sharing systems. Right. So got got to speak to with, we found some people who could speak German. Um, I mean, obviously, when you went to Eastern Europe in those days, it was a languages were a problem. Problem was, you see, I I could only speak um, English and French, and occasionally I would meet people who could speak French, so I could talk to them. Uh, my uh, girlfriend could speak German, so um, if we met people, lots of people could speak German from, obviously, the area having been occupied by Germany, uh, mm -hmm. German was a dominant language. And uh, they had, I mean, this is a computing top topic, they had a unified range machines, um, which were basically copies of the IBM 360. Mm-hmm which had been a strategic decision of the um, Soviet Union sometime in the early 70s, that they were going to base their computer system around these. And I think that was a, a, a mistake, uh, technically, to have taken that strategy. But I talked to them about what they'd had before, and they said, oh, uh, we used to have a BESM here, BESM 4, and it was much better. And this was a, a theme I, I came across when I spoke the next year we went to me and uh, Greg Michelson who I've written mm -hmm. books with went to Poland uh, mm -hmm. it was just just before the Solidarity mm -hmm. events and again there in Gdansk we went to we got to stay in a house borrowed a house from a, a Polish guy said we could use his flat in Poland and uh, we got to speak to people in the uh, this wasn't this wasn't in Gdansk, we went to the. It was in Krakow. We went to the Institute of um, Economics mm -hmm. and tried to talk to people about economic modeling and planning that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And again, these people again said that it, we we did very well when we had Besom machines, which was this interesting. Is clarity, um, what, what, was a, what is a Besom machine? B E S M. I can't. I don't know what it stands for in Russian, but it was the Russian equivalent of played the same role as CDC machines played in the in the West. Uh, the CDC were the first people who did supercomputers in the West, mm -hmm. and the Besom family were the Soviet equivalent of these supercomputers. Um, and it, they all said, "Oh, these were much faster, and you could do things better with them uh, before mm -hmm. they were replaced by the unified range." So mm -hmm. I think that this is a I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but this was an in indicative feature of a strategic mistake in the development of technology. Mm -hmm. They decided to copy Western um, business machines, IBM machines, mm -hmm. rather than go for their indigenously uh, developed 
high performance machines. Why do you think they, they chose to switch from the BESM to the IBM sort of copy? I think the probable motivation was to get a standard instruction set across all machines used and get the saving of um, software development that you get from that, okay? Mm -hmm. That had been IBM's own in, uh, motivation in the mid-60s to produce a standard range of their own. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have separate instruction sets for small business, large business, and supercomputers. Uh, it, it hampered their indigenous development and meant that they were permanently playing catch-up with IBM. And as it turned out, um, in the long run, the IBM mainframe family, although it was still pretty dark. Just for a second, we lost you. Just, just say that last piece again, so we just, just for a second. So I'm saying the IBM mainframe family was reaching its the end of its life at that point, mm. or end of its dominance. Still made them, but um, the dominance of the whole computer market by IBM mainframes was coming to an end, and mm. they'd made this strategic error in backing the wrong horse there, really. Mm. Um, I mean, they, they'd also investigated the possibility of doing collaboration with ICL. I used to I used to work in one of the ICL design centers in, in Manchester, so that, that seemed interesting to me. But just, just for, the, for those who are not aware, what is ICL? International Computers Limited, it was the British competitor with IBM in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So it, it produced uh, competing ranges of mainframes. I see. I see. Um, but anyway, the, the, we, the thing which struck us most about Poland was the ridiculously low prices of food. Mm. Okay? Your money went a huge distance, even with the unfavorable exchange rate that, the, that was officially in place. And... Mm. Yet, when you went into a, a restaurant, everything was specified in grams. You know, everything was very well regulated. You'd go into a cafe and you were told exactly how much, how many grams of fish and meat you get in every dish and mm. what the price was. And the price in Zlotis seemed ridiculously low. And, mm. and often you'd find the things weren't on. There was none on. They, they were unavailable. Mm. And I later realized that the certain shops we'd seen, which just seemed to have marble counters, had been butcher's shops and there was no, no, no meat. meat ever, no visible, no invisible meat. Um, and later when we went back, oh, we, we spent so little money that we had to, we weren't allowed to take our Zlotties away with us. Mm. And we had, had to deposit them in the People's Bank of Poland uh, <laughs> in an account in the People's Bank of Poland and leave, leave our slotties there. Um, but when we came back... Collectivized agriculture. Mm. Uh, we've got lots of food because we've collectivized agriculture. Uh, so that's exactly the opposite message as you would have expected to get from mm. Western propaganda. Uh, so, so just for clarity, was it, and that, that was true that the Polish hadn't collectivized agriculture, so it still was in private production. Is that right? Oh, it was collectivized in the in the fifties, and then in the nineteen fifty six crisis, um, Gomolka decollectivized it. Mm -hmm. so the uh, then, then there was another food crisis under uh, in the mid 60s with workers demonstrations over food shortages and Gamolka was replaced by Girek but it still remained in predominantly private agriculture I mean it was very noticeable flying over the country that it looked like the maps we used to be given at school of the medieval strip field system mm. you strip fields going away from the um, roads and you landed on Krakow airport and there were peasants gathering hay on the airport with horse and carts. Wow. Uh, it really, you, you, it was backward peasant agriculture. And you mm. saw peasants with, with horse-drawn vehicles uh, going around. So it really was small-scale peasant agriculture there, mm. which is completely different from Bulgaria. Mm. And the Bulgarians had a fully collectivized farm system, state-owned farms or collective farms, 
uh, yeah. they'd done. Yeah, I mean, I, I give in I give Poland and Bulgaria as two examples of the effect of not following the law of value in mm. a socialist economy. I contrast the notional value of output of the sectors with the amount of real labor agriculture and industry were using. And the basic contradiction in, in Poland was that the working class demanded cheap food, peasant agriculture couldn't apply it, they, they, um, the food prices were set low, so the notional value of output of the agricultural sector was well below its share of the population. But because it's small-scale, inefficient agriculture, it couldn't meet enough demand. But at the, the low food prices, all the shops were cleared out. The workers could, could buy the food, and, and in the towns, the food was scarce. Mm. The actual kilogram per head of um, meat consumed in Poland in that I checked it with the UN when I got back was 70 kilos a head which was actually above the the Scottish level which was 55 kilos a head but you never saw these shortages in Scottish um, butcher shops because uh, you didn't have cheap subsidized food mm. if, if if food was as if meat was as cheap as it uh, had been in Poland the butcher shops in Scotland would have sold out as well mm. But so do you think that the pricing was, was the problem along with other things too, so that the price was set too low? Yeah, the price was set far too low. Mm. Um, the, the, the problem was that you had this form of populist socialism in Poland, which is analogous to what you get in, uh, in uh, Venezuela, where so socialism is seen in terms of subsidized low-price food rather than... Socialism being seen in terms of the labor being recompensed at its full value. Mm -hmm. So you have a combination of relatively low wages and very cheap food. Um, but the fit food was at the at the low level of food prices. The food oh, oh, okay. The low level of food prices was such that one hour labor in terms of food prices actually required more than one hour's labor to produce that food, okay? <laughs> so that any increase in um, demand could only have been met by allocating much larger quantities of labor to, to, to increase the food production. Um, and therefore, the, the, the prices didn't actually represent the social opportunity costs in terms of labor. Mm. And uh, any time a Polish government attempted to increase food prices, it got overthrown by the workers. It happened mm. three times. It happened uh, in the 50s, it happened in the mid-60s, and it happened in the early 80s. Mm. Um, and this was an irreconcilable problem they had, given their essentially private agriculture and industrial working class that uh, demanded cheap food and that the private agriculture couldn't with its inefficiencies provide this cheap food so what, what sounds intriguing to me here is, is of course we're talking about a, a substantial quantitative uh, sorry qualitative differences between how socialism was organized in poland versus bulgaria and i assume also the other republics so in yeah. the polish I mean, example poland it, wasn't a, didn't claim to be a socialist republic it just claimed to be a people's republic I see. And Whereas so Bulgaria States, and the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia uh, claimed to be socialist republics and were fully collectivized. Mm. And there weren't, you didn't see food shortages in the Czech Republic either. Sorry, Czechoslovakia. It wasn't the Czech Republic then. Czechoslovakia, yes, yeah. Okay, interesting. I've never um, been to Slovakia, only to the Czech parts. I'm saying is about the economic structure. And this is one that had a big impact on me, ma making me realize that a socialist economy really has to pay attention to its pricing policy. Mm. And it has to set its, 
it has to set its prices. Um, the You really have to follow the law of value in setting your prices. If you follow a policy of underpricing necessities in terms of their labor content, i.e. if you attempt to just abandon the law of value in necessities, you end up with shortages and discontent as a result, which is politically disastrous. And was we could see this in the process of politically destroying uh, socialist power in Poland in the 80s. It was a catastrophic policy to follow. Um, and it made me, made me understand why, in their different ways, both Stalin and Gorbachev went on about the necessity to follow the law of value mm -hmm. um, in order to prevent food being wasted. Stalin gave the example, I can't remember where, the same issues came up again and again. Stalin gives the examples of things being, in economic problems of socialism, of things being grossly underpriced compared to the amount of labor they required. And Gorbachev was saying the same thing, that um, in the Soviet Union, they were selling bread at a lower price than grain, mm. okay? So the peasants were feeding, or collective farmers were feeding bread, bread to their pigs rather than grain. Right. Uh, uh, now, the, 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 the response of Gorbachev was thing. Uh, Stalin's line had been that you have to strictly apply the law of value. You have to sell things in proportion to their labor content, mm. uh, which was very much the line that we took. In all these places, I always tried to get as much information as I could on their computer technology and on the processes they had and stuff like that. And I met a, we, we met uh, a guy working for Robotron, mm -hmm. who was the main computer company in Leipzig. And mm -hmm. uh, at that stage, they were just producing a 64K RAM chip. And a 64K RAM chip was still the, the still state of the art in the West. So it was pretty impressive. Uh, I don't think any West German company, I don't think Siemens had a 64K RAM. I see. Uh, 64K RAM now doesn't sound much. Right. <laughs> but, but at the end of the 80s, 64K RAM was state of the art. Right. And you um, found that in East Germany, there was a Leipzig company was was producing this. Yeah, they were producing it. Uh, they had a, a microprocessor, the eight, 1800, um, eight, some kind of 8-bit micro and things. But it was, I mean, we, at this stage, Greg and I, you see, were building our own computers out of chips and things so that we're very familiar with um, home-designed computers and home-designed uh, chips and stuff. And it didn't seem that they were that far behind. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe about four years behind, but not a drastic, mm -hmm. not a drastic amount. Uh, certainly, if, if you said, how did they compare with the British computer industry? By that stage, they were comparable and they weren't having to face the embargo. Britain didn't face the embargoes. Mm -hmm. East Germany did. Um, so they were uh, forming after that, the British... British industry was closed down by, by uh, Thatcher no longer wanting to back it um, so that... Inmos, which had been set up in Britain to develop these RAM chips as a, a nationalized supported company by, by Wilson, uh, got discarded under the Thatcher period. So it didn't strike me that these countries were doing badly in trying to compete with the United States as compared to what Britain was able to do, which was a larger country. Uh, any smaller country had disadvantages competing with the US in uh, so, and, and did you visit any other countries? So obviously we've... You did Hungary, East Germany, Hungary. Hungary. Hungary off, off later on the same year to try and get towards a new socialism translated into Hungarian. Uh, see. And uh, Alan went to Moscow to try and get it done. And he managed to get a job in Moscow for some months. Mm -hmm. uh, um, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't get anyone interested in a book on um, how to reform socialism because all the economists he met were neoliberals. And, and this was in 1989. Yeah. It wasn't until the very end of his stay there, he met some people from Moscow State University and he, who were interested in the ideas. 
And he said, he told me something that one of them had said, who was a, clearly an older Marxist economist. He said that, um, th this Russian guy said, if for 20 years you're told by younger people that you're stupid and old-fashioned, you start to believe it yourself. Mm. I mean, uh, so th that, the Moscow State University guys who were planning economists were interested, but most of the economists he met weren't, and he wasn't able to find anyone to do it. I found in, in Hungary that people who... I went to see Zuzsa Ferge, who had published a good book on Hungarian socialism in English, mm. and I thought she would be sympathetic. Uh, but no, no, she'd, she'd switched over to um, social democracy or, and, and liberalism as well. No, mm. did, wasn't at all interested in anything other than the move back to, to capitalism. I mean, what struck me was how the middle classes, both in, in Hungary and in Czech Republic and in Poland, were expressing classic middle-class interests as members of the professional middle classes who would do better under a mm. Western system. Mm. Just for clarity, so you were obviously speaking to them about the book Towards a New Socialism. I mean, obviously, just for those who may, may not have read or, or not sure what the book uh, says, um, obviously, it's a, it's a book that talks about using computers, uh, using cyber, cyber cybernetics and whatnot to uh, assist in a managed a planned economy with workers' controls and inputs in a, in a sort of digital way. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I was concerned with this because from sometime in the early 80s, I'd been asked to go to Peking to advise on it uh, by a, a computer PhD student I knew who said they were going to start allowing Western academics in um, and he would try and get me a job at the planning ministry. But they then were then told later that no, um, the planning ministry was the one place they certainly wouldn't allow any any Western uh, technical experts into. Um, nice. So that never went through. But that was what started me to con to think about the problem from the 1980s, early 1980s. Sorry, that was from about 83 or so. Um, so that the experience of what I was seeing in Eastern Europe was feeding into um, a practical concern that I might actually be thinking about how to do this in China. And in the early stages of it, I was thinking of it as an engineering problem. Okay. So I started designing these 128-bit address space computers because the idea was to take all the computers in China that would be available at some future point in time when I, I reckoned there would be billions of them. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, okay, let's see if the, we have to envisage a future where there'll be one computer for everybody in the world, which seemed a, a huge number in the 1980s. But I thought, okay, we'll do that and you, you, can, you can work out how much storage they're going to require and you end up with, I reckon you're going to need a... Um, a 48-bit Ethernet address to identify every machine. You're going to need two to the 48 possible logical objects you could have on each machine. And each of these logical objects might be up to two to the 32 bits in length. So that I end up with 128-bit design mm -hmm. and design several machines that were of that character. Some of them, I mean, one, one I actually built. But at that stage, I was seeing it as a computer engineering problem because I was a computer science student. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And going to, to these places, I realized it was also a matter of applying the law of value. Mm -hmm. It wasn't enough just to see whether these places had the computer technology, which is why we kept going to see what technology they had. You know, we'll right. go, to the com go to the computer centers. Uh, it wasn't enough just to look at that. It was also a matter of how do you integrate the law of value into your system of planning? Mm. How do you have a, um, a system of pay that fits in with that, that mm -hmm. overcomes the contradiction mm -hmm. which was working its way out in Poland mm -hmm. and which was destroying the system, self-evidently mm -hmm. destroying the system? Mm -hmm. I see. So, yes, like you say, you, you were going there with the intention to develop a, a better, as you say, an engineering solution to the problem that you wanted to come up with machinery and computers and use them to assist with the planning and making every object essentially able to communicate using uh, yeah. computer means. Um, but then you realize that this problem wasn't actually the most important one. It was actually the application of the law of value. Yeah. Also, I realized that uh, at that stage, I mean, I, I, was a, I was a programming language and database researcher. 
So mm. my first thought of it is how do I organize a database big enough to handle all the information about planning? I later realized it wasn't just a, a database issue. It was also an issue of algorithmic complexity. What algorithms do you use? Mm-hmm. And how do you solve that? So I got to talking to the people from the Edinburgh Supercomputer Center as to how they solved large systems of, mm-hmm. of equations. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point I realized, because it, numerical methods had never been something that I'd taken an interest in before, that all this bullshit that Nove was writing about it taking billions of years to solve the equations for a plan. Who's in this Nove, Economics of Feasible Socialism. Mm -hmm. Um, Nove was a a professor of um, Soviet studies at Glasgow University. At that stage, I didn't know him. I got to know him later. Uh, He had written this book, Economics of Feasible Socialism, which was basically the case for a Gorbachev-type market socialism. Mm. And it had a big impact in Britain in shifting the Labour Party from its previous position of nationalizing industry to the Blairite position of, you know, not dealing with, not intervening in the market, just leaving mm. the market to deal with it. Uh, now, no, wasn't a, wasn't a Blairite. He was, a, he was more of a classic social democrat. His criticism of the Soviet Union in that way provided an ideological path for the Labour Party mm-hmm. to move. And um, it was listening to Neil Kinnock talking about how, how important No's work was that I decided, no, I had to produce a refutation of this based on what I'd learned going to the Soviet Union and what we thought about in um, the technology we studied. But one of the things Nove was saying was that he, he cited people who are obviously pro-market Soviet mm-hmm. economists saying that it would take billions of years to compute a balanced plan. Mm-hmm. And that that was based on using, well, he's not specific about what algorithm they're going to use, but it's plausible you would take billions of years if you tried to solve it using uh, analytic Gauss, Gaussian techniques rather mm-hmm. than um, iterative techniques. And the people who were doing the supercomputer work, who were trying to compute the mass of the trying to compute the mass of the proton, I think, um, something something obscure like that from using huge computing resources to try and, from first principles, work out the mass of the proton. Um, they said, that, oh, when you've got huge systems of equations, you don't do it that way. And that, that made me realize that these algorithmic claims were just nonsense. Right. You could show that it was really tractable. Yes. So, 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 so it, it was actually not... Not as complicated and difficult to calculate uh, all of the details. No, it is, it, it's orders of magnitude simpler. Mm. And that, that's a key point we're making towards a new socialism, that the, 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 you can get planning algorithms that are um, perfectly adequate mm-hmm. in order n log n time. Okay, if you've got n, n different products, say a million products, mm-hmm. The, the time to compute the plan will grow as n times log of n rather than n to the power of three, okay? If you say n to the power of three, a million products means you'll take 10 to the 18 steps to do it. If you take n log n, well, you, you get a million from the 10 to the six times six, so it's six million instead of um, instead of, of the order of uh, 18... 10 to the 18 mm-hmm. steps. Mm-hmm. It makes a huge difference. So you obviously wrote towards the new socialism in, in, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, and you did that based on the computer technology at the time. Obviously now, you obviously have a much better And also, actually, I suppose another thing we can kind of think about is that right now we Computer, the personal phone computer, the, the, the smartphone, along with the Internet of Things and 5G, it seems to me that perhaps the infrastructure for um, you know, being able to calculate and rationalize the plan are certainly even more present and, and available. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, these things are available. They're not, I mean, in, in some sense, is they're not as straightforwardly and elegantly available from a computer engineering point of view because... Um, you have to go through lots of software layers to access objects and other things. You have to go through SOAP protocols and all sorts of stuff like that. But the protocols are in there and they're in use and the basic comms technology is advanced by leaps and bounds. 
and the cheapness of, of processors has gone right down. So there's no problem getting the processing power. Uh, the, the comms may be more complicated in terms of uh, layers of protocol than we envisaged, but it, it, it'll certainly work fast enough. Because when you're talking about wide area things, mm-hmm. you're dominated by the speed of light time to get there and back. Mm-hmm. And with really fast processors, you can afford the the extra protocols. Um, it's not so easy from a software point of view because what we were working on were programming languages which would integrate the processing with the database function so that you would, you would access any data, whether it was local or across the other side of the world, in exactly the same way as a local variable. So from a software point of view, uh, the way it's grown up for the capitalist world is not the way we would have uh, wanted to set up the technology if we designed it from the offset for socialist purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, both me and a guy called Rosenberg in uh, Monash University uh, were working on these 128-bit machines, Monash University in Australia. Mm-hmm. And some people in Germany were working on them too. So the, the, the idea of that kind of wide area computer machine was being pursued by other people in the um, 80s, but it wasn't what capitalist industry wanted, and therefore it wasn't what got invested in. I mean, I, I tried a couple of times to get big firms to, to, to adopt it. I tried to get I, ICL, who I told you about, mm-hmm. uh, and Acorn, the company that produced the ARM chip. Okay. I got contracts from both of them to to develop wide address machines, but none of them really, none of them wanted to adopt it. Why not? Well, it wasn't, it was too far ahead of what the market needed at that point. It would have made sense if you you were starting out wanting to construct a computer architecture for worldwide socialist planning, but none of these firms really were doing that. Right, right. Uh, is, there, so is there any similar... Neither so, us nor Rosenberg's team who built a machine in, in Monash really mm-hmm. got uh, support for it. Just so I can understand this type of machine um, and for listeners as well. So it's obviously a machine that is, why is it different or how is it different to uh, Okay, you know what virtual network? memory is? Do you know what virtual memory is? Virtual memory, no. no. Okay, um, most current computers, well, for, okay, most current complete computers at the moment are 64-bit machines, okay? Mm-hmm. Of the, they, they practically, you're allowed to have an address that's 64 bits wide. Mm-hmm. None of them have two to the 64 bytes of physical memory on. That's just mm-hmm. too much to, to, to buy at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the memory is divided into pages. Mm-hmm. And if the page isn't found in your local memory, mm-hmm. the computer fetches it from disk. Okay. Mm-hmm. and you're therefore given the illusion that you have more memory than you actually have. Some mm-hmm. of your stories on disk. And um, th- these things have, have become more common since the 1980s. But in, in, let's go back. This, was developed, this technique was developed on a supercomputer called the Atlas Computer at Manchester University in the 1960s, that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and the... ICL factory that I was involved with was very much involved with developing the next generation of that machine mm-hmm. uh, called the MU5, which developed that to a higher level, had more virtual memory. And then Edinburgh University developed operating systems for this, these classes of machines, which had this idea of a flat store that your files appeared just in the virtual address space of the machine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you want to access a file, you carried out a mapping operation. So the file then appeared as an array in your address space, and you could access it as an array. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, now that kind of facility was, you know, the research thing at Edinburgh University in the seventies. Um, it became available on Windows NT. And it became available on. Uh, later versions of Linux. So this kind of idea of, of virtual arrays and stuff was has has been accepted by the industry. But what the researchers in Edinburgh and Monash and places were doing was the next step beyond that. Is to say, okay, how about constructing a machine address that includes 
a unique worldwide network address of the machine you're addressing and append that to the data, to the, the address of the data on the machine. So that if you had the permission to access it, an array of statistics on a machine in Australia or in Peking could be accessed by your program in just as easily as an array of statistics on your local computer. And mm -hmm. you would send messages through the internet to fetch the pages of the array as you needed them. Mm -hmm. So there's, so, all, there's all sorts of things you have to do to design it to make sure that it's transactionally secure, that it's secure against concurrency and stuff like that. But yeah. these these were the sorts of things we were working on. So this, so just if we try and put that into the the planned economy, you would have then a let's say a, a combine harvester uh, connected to this network to this grid, and it would be feeding in data directly to the central uh, into the system. Uh, reporting on uh, different ways of quantifying how the labor the, the, well, how it was being used and resources being used. In principle, any computer attached to any of the factories in the plant system would have its data accessible by any of the others. I'm not going to say there were various security things to make sure that only the right people could access the data. I'm not going to get into that. But basically, from a programmer's point of view, um, it would look the, the data on the the combine harvester mm -hmm. a thousand miles away would look just like data on your local computer from right. the person writing the algorithm. Right. So that um, your uh, uh, programming language wouldn't have to distinguish between remote and local data. I see. I see. But get so a uniform this, this way of treating with, it all. Right. So this would assist the, in terms of the plan. Uh, the system obviously would not be differentiated between local and, and distant, but would be able to say, okay, uh, this combine harvester or X amount of combine harvesters have used uh, this much fuel, uh, and this is a slight increase as to what the projection was. So we need to increase uh, production of this, yeah. uh, say, a diesel fuel for that type, and that needs to be delivered to that area by this time. So it would assist with that kind of plan. It would assist with that kind of plan, but it would also assist with the kinds of things that uh, Google does now of indexing people's um, documents across the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. Index all the text in the world. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, I, I, I think I'm going to have to no, that's okay. off it's now. It's getting very cold and windy. No, that's fine. I know you're outside, so that's fine. <laughs> Um, yes, so so I think we can we can leave on that point. But uh, is there anything you would like to, to to close on in terms of in relation to this? Any final thoughts? Well, I mean, you, you, the thoughts is you can't really tell which way technology is going to go. There are lots mm. of techniques which people think of, um, which might appear to be optimal at a given point, but the actual development of technology is history dependent. So that um, if a particular technique, which is in principle feasible, doesn't get the investment put into it, 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 it withers and dies. Mm, 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 mm. I see. Yes, that, 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 the prevailing economy, the prevailing society obviously invests into its technology that it requires. And, and at the moment, obviously, because these things are not required uh, for a capitalist economy, they aren't necessarily as invested as they could be. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Soviet cybernetician Grushkov was pushing for this kind of thing in the 70s and they didn't do it. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm going to... And, and imagine if they did. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to put an end to this, Paul, because no I'm problem. getting too cold. That's okay, Paul. Thank you very much, Paul, and uh, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. Okay, tell me when it's on, when the boss podcast's on. No problem. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. 
and I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.